You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Um, the words are still, for me, uh, stunning. And it's a, as we sing, let's meditate upon it and think about it as well. We'll stand and sing, How Deep the Father's Love. Now, we normally... Um, We sing God's Word, we pray God's Word, and we read from God's Word, and we also teach from God's Word, and normally do that systematically, and I've been looking through the book of Isaiah, and we're in Isaiah chapter 45, and at verse 14. It's uh, to set the context of the passage, and please remember this, that when you're studying the Bible, it's easy to quote the Bible to prove anything. The Bible actually says there is no God. That phrase is there in the Bible. But you've got to get the context, right? Because the bit before says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And that's a very simplistic example, but many people when they read the Bible take verses out of context, and that's not how it should be done. We believe that this is God's Word, and it's speaking to us today, and I hope that you'll see that as we go on. The context of this passage is that God's people are having a particularly tough time. Their nation, Israel, their city, Jerusalem, and their temple have all been taken over, destroyed. Many of them have been taken into exile. And God sends Isaiah as his prophet, and Isaiah doesn't come, and as many preachers perhaps would do today, say, hey, everything's great, everything's going to be fine. Isaiah says that King Cyrus, who is the heathen king who did this, is God's servant. And that raises a lot of questions. And you may say, well, I mean, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not used to coming to church, you say, okay, well, what does any of this have to do with my life? This is like a history lesson. Um, And by the way, if any of you new students here are history students, please make a point of speaking to me at the end because you are the elite. And... um, uh, it's nice to talk to people who are studying a useful subject like history. So, but this is not a history lesson. This is, um, you can guess that I did history uh, and politics. But uh, that was a useful subject. This is not a history lesson. This is us listening to what God has to say to us. And so we come into Isaiah 45 where... Uh, God says this in verse 14. It's on page 732. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. Well, let me just stop there and let's just look at something in that. Now, I want to begin with something that really jars. If you are a modern contemporary person, and I said to you, the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ That sounds like a really horrible phrase. We're going to look at that, 
And we're going to ask the simple question about why we should trust in Jesus. And again, even though that phrase jars for many people, because we don't like being told what we should do. So how do we deal with that? How do we grasp that? Okay, this is where I want to begin and explain this. The refugees that are coming from Libya and from Syria and from a war-torn Middle East, trying to come into Hungary, what does the Hungarian prime minister say? He says, we don't want refugees because he wants to protect Europe's Christian heritage. And a lot of people have sympathy with that. Majority of people polled in Britain don't think that Britain should even take the meagerly 20,000 that Mr. Cameron has proposed. Why? Because there's always been a constant tendency for nations, for churches, for social groups who feel they're being besieged to draw up the drawbridges, circle the wagons, and seek to hold on to what we have got. And God's people, Israel, at this point, must have really felt like that. They must have felt that they were tiny, that they were being persecuted, they were being brutalized, and that they wanted God to come and protect and to help them. And God sends through Isaiah a far greater vision. The the poem and the words that we read are poetry in Hebrew. The poem that we read expands verses 6 to 7 of Isaiah 45, which say this. From the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So first of all, what he does is he addresses the people of God, and then he gives an invitation to everybody. And so therefore, it includes, incorporates everyone here. As I said, Israel looks as though they've got every reason to be defensive. If you're under siege, don't you become very defensive? I mean, if you came up to me... uh, after the service and started having a go at me, I I would be very, very defensive. You start having a go at my family, I'll be defensive. You start having a go at um, my church, I'll be defensive. Start having a go at the Scotland rugby team, I'll probably not be so defensive. I'm I'm Japanese as regards that. Uh, That's where I'm going. But we, we, we do have a tendency, don't we, to become defensive. But God says to his people, look, I want you to look up And I want you to see the fields white for harvest. In the Christian church today, I think there's a tendency for us to become very defensive, to be very inward looking. And Jesus says, look up, open your eyes and see the fields that are white for harvest. Now, what God promises his people sounds extraordinary because he says that there are people from the ends of the earth who will come and who will acknowledge the God of Israel. Their enemies will come to acknowledge that God is God. They'll come to, although they come in chains, they'll find deliverance in God. They'll come to acknowledge the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, as the God of the whole world. Now, please know what this is not. This is not nationalistic, militaristic, uh, cultural supremacy, triumphalism. It is just simply what you expect from the creator of heaven and earth. If he is who he says he is, then ultimately all people will acknowledge and bow before him. Jerusalem here stands for the people of God. And we're told about how Egypt will come. And that's because Egypt then, because of the Nile, was known as a rich agricultural place. 
and it was close to Israel. The tall Sabaeans, they were the inhabitants then of people thought of the most exotic regions, the kind of upper regions, a bit like Orkney and Shetland. You know, if you're from Orkney and Shetland, welcome as well. But uh, people from Dundee, it seems a long way away. I remember being on a train from London one time and a bunch of kids from London, when we got to Watford Gap, said, are we in Scotland yet? Because they just thought it was so far north to be in Watford. Well, when he talks about the Sabaeans here, he's talking about people who are far away, who we don't really know. They also will come. If you like, Egypt represents everything that's cultured, rich, and oppressive. The Sabaeans are the Western Isles. Egypt is London. And what's being said here is that they will come humbly, willingly, across national barriers to a new lifestyle, a new beginning. And Isaiah is stunned by this statement, and he's stunned by this vision. So in verse 15, he responds by saying, Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself. And what he's saying is this. He said, oh, Lord, if this is true, why is it not happening? And you and I, if we are believers, we can identify with that. You know, there are churches that teach that all you have to do is claim it. Healing? Claim it. Name it and claim it. Money? Name it and claim it. I believe the Lord for a Porsche, and I didn't get it. I believe the Lord for healing and my granny still died. I believed God for this, and it didn't happen. And if you've been taught that, and teaching like that is not from the Bible, it's from the pit of hell. If you're taught that, then you're inevitably going to be disappointed. But even if we're not taught that, sometimes it does feel as though God hides himself. Where is God? And I think this is a question of people who believe in God, but are struggling to see him at work in their lives and in their world. The Israelites believed that the makers of idols would be shamed and disgraced. They believed that, but the makers of idols had just conquered Israel. So how does that work? God will save his people with an everlasting salvation. We believe that, but where is he? The Jewish captives in Babylon were no longer a nation. All their national institutions had gone, if you like, their parliament, their politics, their temple, their religion, it seemed, had all gone. But one day, we are told that the meek will inherit the earth. The saints will judge the world. The first statement's from Jesus. The second is from Paul. But they don't see that. To put it in a Puritan way, the mercies of God are hidden under the clouds of the contemporary situation. And it seems as though God is hidden. And if you said to me, I've never known God be hidden, I've never experienced that, I'm going to say two things to you. One, you're either lying, or two, you are very inexperienced. And it's going to happen. It is going to happen that there'll be a time when you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would like to live, in one sense, in a world where I was always conscious of the presence of God. But that's not true. That's not the way that it is. Now, a word of warning here. We have to be careful talking about the hiddenness of God. 
because it can lead to all kinds of occult stuff and religious superstition. We don't need religious superstition because God has spoken in the words of the late great Francis Schaeffer. He is there and he is not silent. That's what verse 18 tells us. For this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens. He is God, he who fashioned and made the earth. He founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Now, there's several things here that I love about this. And my my problem is, I've studied the Bible for over 30 years. I've taught the Bible for over 30 years. And honestly, this is the truth. I, I come to something like this and I still go, wow. It's like discovering something completely new. And here, what, what I noticed in this, he didn't create the earth to be empty. It's the idea of fullness. And he uses the word empty and in vain. And where's he getting that from? He's getting that from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. It's exactly the same words as Isaiah uses here. What he's saying is the world was not created without purpose. And this is the very antithesis of people like Richard Dawkins and other materialistic atheists. Because what do they believe? This is what Dawkins says. Nature is not cruel. It's only pitilessly indifferent. This is one of the hardest lessons for humans to learn. We cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. If you believe that there is no God and that everything is materialistic, then what you are believing is this. You are believing there is no good and there is no evil and ultimately there is no meaning and there is no purpose and actually everything is empty, including your life. It's empty. And if you were to follow the philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre, as he himself said he couldn't follow it, you would deck yourself. You would top yourself. You would get rid of yourself because life is meaningless. Life is pointless. Ecclesiastes, most wonderful book, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless under the sun. In other words, if the creation is all that there is, if material stuff is all that there is, then it's not full. It is an empty life that we have and an empty world. The Bible actually goes precisely the opposite. I find this so bizarre that, you know, if you're, if, sorry, if you're a student, you're at Freshers Week and if I asked some of the non-Christians, they would say, oh, Freshers Week is great. I mean, my daughter's at Freshers Week in Edinburgh, and when I met her this week, uh, she was absolutely hoarse, because she's just having a whale of a time, just an absolute brilliant time. Oh, university's fantastic. University is brilliant. Yeah, next week you've got to work, but never mind. Uh, in, enjoy it while you've got it. That's great. You guys, I hope you've had a good time at uh, the University of Dundee or Abertay. But... It's amazing how many people say, like, oh, see you Christians. It's all so dull and it's all so boring and you go to church and and I have a good time. You may have a good time, but it's utterly meaningless and purposeless and it's gone in the morning and it's gone the next week because it has no purpose. It has no resolution. You are made for something much deeper and much better than that. And that's what the Bible actually says. 1 Timothy 
Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Here's a simple deal. Sometimes Christians go, what can I do? What can't I do? How far can I go? When you're asking where the, the border is in behavior, you're not understanding the gospel. Instead of saying, how far can I go? Let me put it another way. God provides us ev- richly with everything for our enjoyment. If you cannot thank God for what you're doing, don't do it. If you know that it's wrong and it would be wrong to thank God for doing something wrong, then you don't do it. But you can rejoice with all the good things that God gives because what God is saying here is look at nature, look at the fullness. Even in the fallenness of this world, there is a purpose to absolutely everything. And what God is saying to his people is if that is true of nature, then it's true of your life. And right now, you may be feeling, I don't get this. I don't understand what is happening. I am really struggling. Lord, and then you realize, but there is a purpose. There must be a reason, even though I don't know what the reason is. So God is the creator. He's there. He's not silent. He speaks through his creation. But he's the revealer who speaks through his word. Look at verse 19. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I, the Lord, speak the truth. Deuteronomy 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Why should it be thought impossible that God would speak? And I'm not talking about the nutty stuff. I'm just talking about God speaking through his word. Why do people have so much difficulty with that? Why would we get so excited about hearing God's word? Now, for those of you who are on the church crawl, let me say this to you. I I know that the CU have done this anyway, but they check that the churches that they go to are churches which teach God's word. And I don't care the denomination. I wouldn't touch a church with a barge pole if it did not teach me God's word and it did not teach me God's word in depth. Because I don't want to be subject to some personality, charismatic personality in the sense of, you know, really, oh, they're a great leader, they're a great person. I don't want to be subject just to some church. I don't want to go along with the latest fashions and I don't want to go by my feelings. I need to know in this turbulent world which goes up and down. I need to know, Lord, what are you saying? And I don't want to have to be somebody who fasts for 24 hours and then beats myself up and then waits for a vision or waits for someone else to tell me what to do. I need to know how deep the Father's love is and I need him to tell me. He's done that ultimately in Jesus, Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's what we need. I want to say one more thing about the darkness and the hiddenness of God. Sometimes we go through a dark night of the soul. Sometimes we are in darkness and we think that because we are in darkness, God cannot see. But God is never in darkness. He always sees. 
Now that means two things. One comfortable, one uncomfortable. Firstly, at a comfort level. One of the worst things about being dark and being in darkness is the sheer and utter loneliness. Those of you who've ever struggled with depression, whether it's psychological or chemical or whatever, you know what this means. You know it is the loneliness that really gets. It's the blackness. It's the sense of being on your own. In the words of the old blues song, nobody knows the trouble I'm in. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. There are some of you here, and I know this. I know that you are sitting and you are, and you are in yourself. You feel that nobody understands what you are feeling. And that may well be true, except this. God does. God knows. And in the deepest darkness, there is nowhere so dark that God does not know. But there's an uncomfortable side to this as well. Because some of you are pretending. Because you think that God is in the dark. And you can get away with it. The light is switched off. You're in a room with a computer and it's just you and nobody else. There's no record. Nobody else sees what you're doing. Because if you really believe that they saw what you were doing, you wouldn't do it. But you think you are in the dark. Listen to me very, very carefully. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, how long you've been a Christian or how not. God knows exactly what you are doing. And I and you can fake it and can pretend to everyone around us. We can fool some of the people some of the time, maybe all of the time. Maybe all of the people, all of the time. But we can never fool God. Never. Hypocrisy has to be the most stupid sin of all. Because hypocrisy is pretending to be something before a God who sees exactly what we are. It is a complete waste of emotion and time to do that. Even if I go to the depths of the earth, you are there. And I want to make a plea to all of us who are Christians... You say, well, I'm a Christian. I trust in the grace of God, and I know this. Listen to me very, very, very carefully. Don't fake it with God. Don't pretend with God. We're always going to pretend with other people to some degree. I'm not going to tell you everything about my life. But don't pretend with God. It is the, the sin along with pride which has been the downfall of so many people. So, God goes on then. Verse 20. Gather together and come. Assemble you, you fugitives rather from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn... My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in them. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And that sounds so old-fashioned. It's the guy standing out and outside the cared hall with a big banner. Perish, I mean, believe or perish. Now is the day of salvation. Was, saved what I need to be saved from. To which I can only answer, are you kidding? 
Are you kidding? You're an intelligent person and you're asking what you need to be saved from? There's so much trouble in this world. There's so much difficulty and hassle in your life or that is to come in your life. You need to be saved above all from yourself. And who can save you? Not the idols or the religions of this world. Not the politicians, not the media stars, not the counselors, not your family. Only God. It's been interesting, if you're interested in politics, to see the election of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. Now, without making a political point, I have to say I like the guy. He's kind of old and has a beard and rides a bike and has an allotment. And I think he speaks honestly. I like listening to him. He reminds me of Tony Benn, and I used to enjoy listening to Tony Benn because I thought, well, at least you're not just going to get garbage and spin. And we'll see if that lasts. I suspect it won't. I suspect he'll be nobbled uh, in that kind of way the same as everybody else. Who knows? Maybe that you agree with some of his views. Maybe you disagree with many of his views. We don't preach politics in the church. But let me tell you this, that those who have been enthusiastic about Jeremy Corbyn and think, this is it. This is us going to be led on into the, the new socialist revolution. Just as people might look at David Cameron and say, well, look, what a wonderful leader and so on. We're going to follow and uh, people may do that. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you here and now why Jeremy Corbyn will fail. I'll give you a quote from a man called C.E.M. Jode, who is a British atheist intellectual. If you read his life, it's a fascinating life, typical. Many ways, promiscuous, um, very bright, uh, part of the Fabian group and so on. But after the Second World War, he became a Christian. And he wrote about why the whole project had failed. And this is what he said. It was because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being so disappointed. Disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable, by the behavior of nations and politicians, above all, by the recurrent fact of war. If you trust yourself, if you trust politicians, if you trust, if you believe that you are a socially liberal progressive and you believe that human beings are getting better and better and better, then you are going to be phenomenally disappointed because human beings are not like that. And the Israelites knew it and God comes to them and he says, listen, there are going to be people from all over the world who will come and who will bow the knee to God. And it must have looked impossible, except it's not impossible because look what's happened since the coming of Jesus. Today, there isn't a single country in the world where there are not people who are bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. It really is quite extraordinary. God doesn't say to his people, you're doomed. He says to his people, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Along they come, humbly, willingly. The national barriers are taken down. There's a new beginning. They are accepted. I think even in our congregation here, um, there's Scots, there's English, there's Irish, there's Malaysians, there's Greek, uh, French, American, Portuguese, Estonian, Italian, Dutch. I've missed you out. I apologize. Um, but you're welcome, whoever you are. 
Because in Christ, the nationality doesn't matter. In Christ, the gender doesn't matter. In Christ, the only thing that matters is being in Christ. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, says Paul to the Philippians, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Citing Isaiah, taking this quote out of Isaiah and unbelievably expanding it even more than it is in Isaiah, saying because of Jesus, every knee will bow. When Peter was being criticized for um, preaching the gospel and healing a crippled man, he said, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And this is the exclusiveness. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Oh, but I don't like this exclusiveness. Listen to me and let me ask you to think. The exclusiveness of Christ is the very thing that brings inclusion. How? I'll tell you what it is. All the gods of this world are equal. That's true. But they are equally useless. They are idols that cannot save. They are dumb. They cannot speak. They have no hands. They cannot make. All the things that you trust in cannot save. They cannot bring you fullness. They are ultimately vain and empty. Richard Dawkins is right. Your life is ultimately vain, empty, and meaningless. You create your own purpose, and then it's gone away, bang, like that. Except, Jesus is exclusively unique. He's able to invite you. He's able to invite all the ends of the earth. And every tongue will confess and bow before him. Now, it's exclusive in this sense. It's not exclusive in the sense of, here's a Rolex watch, or I don't know if you've seen the latest advert for BMW, which basically says, if you're rich and got plenty of money, you can have this car, but if you're a peasant, forget about it. And having the car is a sign of your own virility and your own wealth. It's not that kind of exclusive offer. I remember one time walking up Fifth Avenue in New York, and I couldn't believe it. There was a shoe shop with a security guard that wouldn't let you in unless you had enough money or looked like you had enough money to buy the shoes. Now, the offer of the gospel is not that kind of exclusivity. It's not the gated community that says only a certain group of people are allowed in here and others are not allowed in. The offer that Jesus Christ makes is for everybody. Ironically, of course, that means that the rich and the beautiful and the powerful and the good struggle with the good news because it negates their wealth, it negates their beauty, it negates their power, it negates their morality, and it says at the end of the day, you still need Jesus even though you've got these things because without him, they're worthless. You see, it's only in the gospel that there is true inclusiveness and truth. And maybe I'll illustrate it this way. Imagine you're standing beside a great ravine and you want to get across it. And there are lots of bridges. And you're standing on a bridge which goes right over to the other end. But you look and you see all the other bridges and they go quarter way or halfway or three quarters ways. And people walk on them and just drop off the end. And you say to people, hey, come to this bridge. You'll get over on this bridge. And our postmodern liberal goes, don't be so exclusive. Let people go on whatever bridge they want. 
But you know the bridge doesn't, that they're going on leads to destruction. The inclusiveness is not that all ways to God are the same, but the inclusiveness is that Jesus invites all people to come to him. And those who refuse to come to him can turn around and say, well, that's not fair. But Jesus said, I invited you and you did not come. Now, that's the good news that the people of Scotland need to hear today. And that's what the Syrian refugees need to hear. If the Hungarian prime minister truly understood what Christianity was, he would not be saying, let's put up razor wire fences to stop people coming here so we can preserve Christianity. He would be saying, let's take in these refugees, show them kindness, and show them who Jesus Christ is. That's what the gospel is. Isaiah has a universal understanding of salvation, but not a universalist one, and that also is important. Please don't misunderstand what is being said here. The Bible is not saying, oh, everyone's saved. In fact, it's going the opposite way. It's saying there's one way to salvation, and those who don't take it don't get it. And that way is through Jesus. The offer is open to all, but not all accepted. If you're invited to a party and you don't go, how can you turn around and then complain that you're not at the party? You were invited, but you refused. How can you turn around and complain about the host or hostess and say, well, it's not fair. I should be at the party anyway, but you didn't come. You got an invite. You refused to come. And so Isaiah is very strong. He says, those who hold on to their idols will be ashamed and disgraced. Even King Cyrus, this mighty ruler, he will be ashamed and disgraced. But those who turn to Christ are saved. That verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. It's, there's an, uh, a certainty in the way that the Hebrew language speaks here. You could paraphrase it a little bit. It's, it's like Jesus saying, just turn to me and you will absolutely, certainly be saved beyond all doubt. It's not like somebody goes, well, do you know, I think I'll try out Christianity to see how it works. Or I'll follow Jesus for a wee bit. Or this might. It's an absolute dead cert. You commit your life to follow Jesus and you are saved in every way possible. Turn to me and you will be saved beyond all doubt. The opposite of that, of course, is don't and you're lost. Strange, isn't it? You've got a decision to make. Every time you hear the gospel, you have a decision to make. And it's a hugely significant decision. Please don't negotiate with God. Don't say, well, you show me this, you give me this, you do this, or prove this to me or do that. That's not why you're here. You may have come here for many, many different reasons, but the ultimate reason that you are here is because God brought you to here so that you could hear him say to you, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Turn to Christ. What does that mean? I mean, that's kind of religious language. Let me just say it very briefly. There are two things involved. One is repentance. The other is belief or faith. Repentance is just a 180 degree turn. You're heading this direction. You turn around. God calls you. You turn around and you go to God. And what you're doing in that, you're simply saying, Lord, I am repenting for my self-righteousness. I'm repenting for trying to save myself. I'm repenting for all the wrong things that I've done and all the wrong things that I could do. And you're saying, I, I, I'm not bringing anything to you. 
I'm not saying here's the good stuff I did. I did that bad stuff, but I did that. You, you, you recognize, no, 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 no. I can't do it. I can't make it without God. I can't make it without Christ. You are turning around 100%. And the belief is this. It is, it is trust. It's not blind faith. You know what it is? It's you drowning and Jesus holding out his hand to you and you taking hold of his hand and him taking hold of you. And of course, he is much stronger. And you're putting everything in that. Absolutely everything. It's a little bit like being married. You don't get half married. You don't get half saved. You don't become a half Christian. You give your life entirely to follow Jesus Christ, leaning on, relying on, committing to him, trusting that he died for you and that he means what he says. I love this. I love the fact that in the midst of God's people's suffering, God says to them, all the ends of the earth are going to turn to me and I invite all the ends of the earth. And maybe one of the reasons you're going through this suffering is so that that can happen. So where does that leave us? There is a God who created the world. We'll not argue about how he did it, but he did. Everything is created by him. That God has revealed himself to us through his word, above all in his son, Jesus Christ. Without him, we are lost. We are dead in sins and trespasses. We are blind. Without him, we have no purpose. And ironically, there the Bible and the atheist fundamentalists agree with one another. There is ultimately no purpose. But with Christ, even the deepest suffering, even the most awful, and I use it in the sense of amazing, even the most awful awareness of your own sin has purpose and meaning and draws you to Jesus Christ. Those of you who are students, I guess you get lots of advice and you get lots of comments and things and so on. I I just want to give you Augustine's advice, Luther's advice, and advice that's been quoted many times. Love God and do as you please. Which doesn't mean do as you please and because God is love, you can get away with whatever you want. It means that because you love God, you will do what he pleases, but you can rejoice I was, had a conversation this week with somebody who said, what do you think is the missing element in much of the church today? And we talked about various things, and I'll just reflect one thing that for me is hugely important. I just want to know where the joy is. I don't mean just the happy, clappy stuff. We can have that. There's plenty of that. I don't mean the smiling, cheery faces, the shiny, happy people. We can have that too. I'm just asking, where's the joy in the Lord? I'm going to say this because I, I, this is not breaching a confidence, but I'm, I'm so encouraged by this in one level. I do want you to pray for Owen O'Rourke because he is dying. And he probably will die within several months if, he, if there isn't a liver transplant. And you'd think going to visit him. I wouldn't like to visit somebody in that situation. I love it. And I'll tell you why I love it. Because in the midst of that, there's a tremendous joy. You brought me Christ. I've got Christ. And whatever happens, our Father will look after me. Oh, to have 
Faith like that and joy like that. Interestingly enough, not faith that says, I'm definitely going to get better. I just believe God's going to make me better. It's the faith that says, whatever happens, our Father is going to look after me. That's what Isaiah is pointing. That's what God is pleading. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. May God grant that whatever your circumstances, that is your experience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of great trouble and great sorrow and great suffering, when your people were refugees, that you came to them and you told them that you are the God who has created and the God who reveals and the God who speaks. And we thank you that that is still the case today. And some of us, O oh Lord, come with deep pains and sorrows and hurts. Some of us come broken people. We have to confess our sin. But what a wonderful thing it is that you are the God who forgives because you have provided a means of forgiveness. You've provided the bridge that covers the chasm between us and you, Jesus Christ. Lord, grant that none of us here, from the youngest to the oldest, would turn away from your gracious invitation to come to you and be saved. Some of us, O oh Lord, are already Christians. We believe, we know this. And yet our experience is that we've wandered off into the wilderness. We've wandered into a dark and dry and weary place. And how wonderful it is that you are gracious to us and you call us also to repent and to turn to you. And when the accuser comes and says, God won't accept you again, God won't give you what you had before. Lord, help us to see that he's the father of lies and that you are so gracious that again and again and again, as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and forgive us our sins. Create in us a clean heart, O God. Renew in us a right spirit that we may tell your praises and your glory to the ends of the earth. In your name, amen. We're going to sing uh, an old hymn. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.